Good morning. So it sounds like I came the wrong week. You have an apocalypse next week, huh? Thanks, thanks for that, bro. <laughs> Good morning. Could you guys open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30 and 31? In fact, I'd like to start at verse uh, chapter 31 if, if you can find it. You know, there's a lot of ways to study the Bible. Certainly one of the easiest ways, and we're going to kind of approach that a little bit this morning, is to study narrative. Old Testament history, the prophets, at least in their initial application, not maybe the far term, but the initial one, the Gospels and even the book of Acts are all written in narrative form. And the way that you study narrative is you, you place yourself in the story. You stand next to the characters as long as you know the situation and the, and the circumstances, then you, you look around, you, you ask yourself, what would I do and how did the Lord respond when these things took place? So narrative's easy by comparison to going through the book of Romans or, or Hebrews or, or the theological studies where each word has to be looked at, every sentence has to be evaluated. But narrative, I think the only difficulty with narrative is you look around and you say, Lord, why don't you tell us more? You know, you left a lot of stuff out. And you realize that God gave you everything he wants you to know. So the stuff that you don't know, you don't know. But you can look at and understand the things that you, you do know. The, the, the issue, obviously, in, in putting yourself in the story is you want to know the, the circumstances that you're standing. You want to look around the right spot. And so it's important that you understand the context in which you're studying. This morning, we're going to look at a, a story from Isaiah that you can put yourself in. But, but, but let me give you the history. In, in 931 B.C., Solomon dies, David's son. And there was a lot of political upheaval. There, there were a couple of big challenges. Number one, the people weren't walking with the Lord. On the other hand, they had some terrible political leadership. And so it wasn't long after Solomon died that the, that the kingdom of Israel d divided into two. Ten and a half of the tribes went north. They just left behind the place where God had put his name, Jerusalem. They, they forsook the place where the Lord said he would bless and meet with the people. And they, they headed south. Judah... Half the tribe of Benjamin stayed in Jerusalem, but that was it. And at least during that time, and you'll have to be careful as you read through the Kings and the Chronicles, there is an Israel and there's a Judah. There's a north and there's a south. In the north, these ten and a half tribes that left um, changed all of the rules. They lowered the standards for priesthood that the Lord had established. They, they established places of calf worship like they had learned in Egypt and Bethel and in Dan. They changed the feast days on the, on to different months so that the people wouldn't be tempted to go back to Jerusalem. And they really formed a new religion that God hated. For 209 years, till 722 B.C., they existed without a good king, without a, a, a day of blessing the Lord. They, they stood in rebellion. God sent them some prophets. He warned them what, what was coming. They didn't care. And so in 722, the, the world power at the time, the Assyrians came in and absolutely annihilated, annihilated the north. They, they, they didn't have a problem, uh, promise from the Lord of restoration. They were just wiped out. And the only hope they had was to run for their lives or eventually work their way back to the south where God had put his name. 722, they were done. In the south, this little group called Judah during those years had some good kings, eight of them to be exact. They, they lasted for 325 years, but they, they went in the same direction, although just not as fast. The, the hill down the hill wasn't so steep. So there were times of revival, times of great joy, times of worshiping God, times of some good leadership. But in the end, 
It was idolatry and disobedience that kind of got to that same group of people. But they were God's people. They were where God wanted them to be. They just weren't always where they should have been in their hearts. And so God sent them a lot of prophets, including Isaiah, including Jeremiah and others. To, and the warnings came kind of in a, in a slow sense. First it was, if you repent, you'll be fine. Then it was, repent or you're going into captivity. And then it was, you're going into captivity. So don't fight it or you'll die. And that, that's kind of the, 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 the development, if you will, of the warnings from the Lord. In, in 606, or 325 years after Solomon had died, the Babylonians came in. They came in in three different phases, 606, 597, 586. They, in 586, the place just got leveled, but in those 20 years of attacks, 20 of those 70 years were already accomplished, and God said to the nation, you're going into captivity for 70 years. You're going to learn in a place of tremendous idolatry not to worship idols. And so they went into Babylon. Babylon, by the way, was the, the, the world power at that time. In the first wave, Daniel was taken, a bunch of rich kids actually from, from very uh, developed families, if you will, uh, were taken to be the, the emissaries between uh, the Babylonians and, and Nebuchadnezzar and, and the captive Jews that they were importing in 596, 597 I should say, tens of thousands of people were taken. Um, and then in 586, everyone else, unless you were an invalid or you were handicapped, you weren't much used to them, they left you behind, but that was it. So that, that's the setting for this, this, uh, this portion of Scripture, if, if you will, except to say Isaiah was sent by the Lord to the southern kingdom of Judah to minister to them for 50 years. And he started in five, uh, sorry, 740 B.C. So he started his ministry 18 years before the north would fall. And then he would continue through that time, if you will, and as the north fell, the Jews in the south had a visual reminder that the Lord wasn't kidding. And so they would be able to look 70, 80 miles to the north and say, that could happen to us. And Isaiah and others certainly used that as a, a teaching tool, right? <laughs> look what happened to them. And it is coming our way if we don't turn back to the Lord. Yet Judah was into it and was not into it. Their, their hearts were just hard. Their, the, 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 the testing of, of the Assyrians coming their way sort of, should have, I think, wake, woken them up. I don't know if you know anything about world history, but the Assyrians didn't kill people when they took them over. They maimed them. They would go into a city, drag out the mayor and the governor and maybe some prominent businessmen, and they would poke out an eye and cut off an arm and chop off a leg and then send them back into town and say, just tell everybody this is what's going to happen to them if they don't give up. And trust me, they gave up. It was a brutal sign of, 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 of folks. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, Judah in the south at a time was not trusting the Lord, did not really care for their heritage or the things that God had done. And so they maintained an outward religion. People were in church, so to speak, all the time, right? They went to the temple. They, they lifted their voices. Um, we will read in, in the prophets that they, they, they praised him with their mouths, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And, and so... They maintained an outward religion, and they had a godly king. They had Hezekiah as the king, while we're reading this, and they had Isaiah as the prophet. So they had, they had good government, they had good religious leadership, which, by the way, the Jews didn't have when Jesus was born. So they had some, some opportunities, if you will, to do the right thing, and they did not. So the book of Isaiah is filled with encouragements, 
examples of how the north had fallen, examples of how you can live by faith, examples of what the Lord wants to do, even under or against overwhelming circumstances, if you will. I mean, he's, he really is a cheerleader, but man, what a job. He and Jeremiah both, you know, put a hundred years in with very little response and very little uh, fruit to show for their faithfulness. But you also learn as you read this book and you put yourself in, in that situation, you stand in the narrative, that it is pretty stupid to try to get things fixed without the Lord when you know him and you belong to him. So the backdrop for chapter 31, and we'll start there just real quickly, was this massive march south from the northern kingdom, 80 miles away, if you will, towards Jerusalem. And here comes the world power, merciless, brutal Assyrian troops and army. Their conquest of Israel had begun. Their desire to wipe out Jerusalem was coming. In 722, the north fell. 21 years later, Jerusalem would be surrounded by their armies. 21 years it took to go 80 miles. They literally wiped out every town, every walled city. They did it meticulously, and, and, and they did it very slowly. But if you lived in Jerusalem and you were uh, part of the Jewish people, and you knew God and his history, you had all kinds of time, besides all of the years you've had, to say to yourself, they're getting closer. And it just seems to me there's no way out. Many people died, history tells us. Many were captured. There was a daily fear that over those 20 years kind of grow exponentially so that the, the, the people cowered eventually behind the walls of the city. Hezekiah the king had been pressured, just reading you out of the Old Testament history, to send some money, if you will, and emissaries to Egypt to buy from them protection and, and armies, to buy from them support and horses. Much money traveled across the borders as these uh, lines of communication began to open, and, and we'll look at that in a minute in chapter 30. And all the while, the prophet Isaiah is crying out, Stop trusting in the world, man, trust the Lord. We are in trouble. We've dug the hole as deep as we can. Let's turn around. Let's repent. We've got to stop trying to do this on our own. Have faith in God alone. But the people in their fear couldn't reach for a faith they didn't have, so they reached for the things they did. Political solutions, right? Relationships with, with foreign powers, a bigger gun, a bigger army, and all. So the South was going to be assaulted. They were in the, the crosshairs of this army that is coming, but for 21 years they would come and they would come against God's people and they would um, watch and see without changing their hearts. They saw it coming, it was inevitable, and yet they didn't turn. Chapter 30, which we will look at in a minute, was written in 713 B.C. We know that only because of what is talked about there, which means that it was almost nine years since the attack had happened uh, in the north. Chapter 31 was written in 705, four years before the final onslaught. So <laughs> 22, 22 years of, of watching. Nine years later, chapter 30, Isaiah's proclamation of the people. Some more years pass. Now there's only four years to go. Now it's 705. It's been 17 years. And chapter 31 is delivered to them. 
Well, here's what it says in chapter 31, verse 1. So you, at least you're feeling where the people are standing. The Lord says this to them through the prophet, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely upon their horses, who trust in their chariots because they are many, and in their horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise, and he will build, bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. It is certainly a common struggle, I think, for all of us as believers, that, that we have a tendency when we need help to turn to everyone and everything except the Lord. We might verbally say, we're just trusting God, but then we're quickly on the phone, you know, looking up contacts, trying to pull in favors. Rather than putting our trust in the Lord, it, it's a sad truth that, that so often our real faith comes to, almost comes to fruition as a last resort, right? It, it, you've probably heard people say, all I can do now is pray. <laughs> Which, which kind of belies your heart. It, that should be the first thing you do and the thing you have the greatest confidence in. But no, I'm just reduced now having to let God work it out. And, and, and preferring to rest in the tangibles rather than in, in our faith, right? The tangibles, you know, the, the, what we understand, who we know, what, what, what might help us, what we think would work, what, what our friends are saying, what the counselors have told us. And, and it, it all kind of circumvents the Lord. These black, backslidden um, children of Israel at this time in Judah turned to a much more comfortable solution for their problems and their fears, um, more solid confidence in the arm of flesh. I mean, that's what they were hoping in. King David would have to learn that. He, he wrote Psalm um, 20, I think it's verse 6 of chapter, of chapter 20, where he said, you know, some people trust in horses and some others trust in chariots, but, but we'll trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now that's a hard lesson for a king to learn who's in charge of a, of, of a huge and, and growing populace and a, an ever-expanding kingdom. Somehow he had to learn that. Somehow we have to learn that. That's, that we, we tend to go where we find our greatest comfort, but somehow we have to get to the place where our greatest comfort is, is God can handle this. But that, that's our greatest hope. That, that's my first step, if you will, in the right direction. Jeremiah, a hundred years from when we're reading this, will have the unsavory job of writing down the fall of, of Judah, writing down how the people were killed and put in shackles and dragged 700 miles away to captivity and how his years of ministry had literally done nothing other than prove that God was faithful and he could be trusted. So in chapter 17, I think of of, of Jeremiah, 100 years later, he says to them, Curses is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. says the same thing. David writes Psalm 20 in 1000 B.C. This is written in 705 B.C. Jeremiah writes in 602 B.C. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> the word of God doesn't change. Cursed is the guy who decides trusting in something other than him is a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's a horrible idea. And, and, and then the armies took the, the, the children of Israel to Babylon and Jeremiah had to write it all down. So here the prophet Isaiah repeats the warning he's been sounding for quite some time. And, and notice the word woe. And whenever you read the word woe in the scriptures, never good. 
It's like the whoa, dude, that's not good. It's not one of those kind of whoa's. It's kind of a whoa to you, you know. This is not a good thing. Uh, when you turn your confidence from the Lord to worldly trust, that's not a good thing. And in this, at, at least in this case, it was Egypt. It was Egypt, it was Egypt's armies, it was their soldiers, it was their horses. It was the best the world had to offer. R remember when the Lord took Israel out of Egypt, he, it, the one thing he said to them, you shall never go back here. That's the place God brought you out. So you don't need to be going back to the, Lord, to, to the world to find somehow your hope and your strength to live today. Don't go back there. I, I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Don't ever go back there again. And God meant it. Flip back to chapter 30 for a minute, and all we're doing is going back in history about seven or eight years, and it's still the same message. But chapter 30, verse 1, there's that woe verse again. <laughs> Uh, the Lord speaks directly to Judah's representatives, their emissaries, their, their secretary of state, if you will, who had loaded the horses with money, who had put grain and, and food on, on the backs of these animals for payment, who were headed for Egypt hoping, hoping to make a, a mutual defense pact, if you will, before the Assyrians reached Jerusalem. And, and he says this to them in verse 1 of chapter 30, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans, but not by my spirit, that they may add sin to their sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Similar words years earlier, which tells me something. We're not quick at learning, right? This lesson is repeated constantly. Take counsel, but not from me. Devise plans, but not led of my spirit. To the Lord, he says it here very clearly. It is adding sin to sin. Man's counsel, turning to Egypt instead of turning to God, who thought, they thought it was their best hope. So the Lord here in these next few verses, in very, uh, no uncertain terms, um, speaks to them that this relationship would be to their shame. In other words, this wasn't going to work out. He says in verse 3, Therefore the strength of Pharaoh will be your shame, and your trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were as Zoan, and his ambassadors head down to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be of help or benefit, but a shame and a reproach. Oh my. Now if you believe that, you'd call the Lord first. Because whatever you're planning to do without him is certainly not going to be to your benefit. Right? It looks good on paper. You could probably get a majority of people to high-five you. That was a great idea. And then the Lord said, yeah, that's going to be a shame. It's never a shame when you trust the Lord. It is always a shame when your greatest hope is something other than him or someone other than him. The Lord then speaks through Isaiah to the caravans headed for Egypt here in verse 6. This is what he said. The burden against the beasts of the south, the ones that were carrying the loot, the payments, through a land of trouble and anguish from uh, which come the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of their young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who will not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. 
Therefore, I have called that place literally Rahab sits idle. Just isn't doing a thing. Well, the Lord then says this to Isaiah, and remember you're standing in the narrative. You want to stand with the prophet. The Lord tells him to do one thing, number th- or two things. Number one, put this message on a sign and walk around town. Just let everyone read this. This is a bad idea. You can just imagine, right? I saw a lot of signs out here. There must be an election coming, right? There's a lot of people out with signs. Well, I, Isaiah had an election too. He was electing to serve the Lord. And, and he had the signs out, right? And then he was to write it in a scroll so that later on, as the people like us would read, we would hopefully learn the lesson that this generation did not. So on, on the one hand, he had an immediate message. On the other hand, he left a living kind of legacy that, hey, this principle doesn't change. So here's what he writes in verse 11. Now he said, go and write it on a tablet and then note it upon a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to their seers, do not see, and to the prophets, don't prophesize to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from being before us. The people only wanted prophets that said what they wanted to hear. There's a lot of successful ministries right now in the world that succeeds because of these verses. They tell people what they want to hear. They say things which they agree with. They, uh, they take the easy route, right? doesn't help anyone. can draw a big crowd, but not lasting fruit. They didn't want doom and gloom. They didn't want silly calls to faith. They wanted smooth things, blessing things. Talk to me about stuff that makes me feel good. I want to go to church and feel good. Oh, that's helpful. Because that's what we need more than anything. Go preach to us. And the Lord tells Isaiah to broadcast it to them and then write it on a scroll to warn the people later on. He then says this to them, verse 12. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, because you despise this word, Because you trust in oppression and perversity and rely upon them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach that is ready to fall, like a bulge in a high wall where breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. He shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel. Broken in pieces he shall not spare, so there shall not be found even among the fragments a shard to taste fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern, or if you will, this is going to blow up in your face, right? This is, there's not going to be anything left that can serve you, even a little piece of a pottery that you can take a drink with and hold some water to bring to your mouth. When the Assyrians arrived in 701 and besieged the city of Jerusalem, the siege became a reality. The Egyptians failed to show up. We're under attack. Please come now. They did not come. They looked the other way. They broke every promised alliance. It was really in this imagery of the potter who threw out a work that wasn't suitable and left such small pieces that nobody could find any use for it all. They were just a bunch of crackpots. That's really what they were. They didn't come through. The world doesn't do that. Their their help was of no value. And then the Lord says this in verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence, that'll be your strength. 
but you would not. And you said, well, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall even be swifter, literally. So the Lord calls them in verse 15, <coughs> your only hope is to trust me. Find some confidence, rest in my care, believe in my word, turn to me in faith. Because no striving and no planning and no relying on the arm of flesh was helped. The Lord said, you're my people, call me. And then I'll help you. And they said, especially the leaders, if you go back and read the historical part of this, yeah, we'll just get out of Dodge, we've got fast horses. And the Lord said, yeah, but they got faster horses. Your plans even to get out from under this is going to not materialize at all. So the Egyptians didn't hold up their end of the bargain. This is 7.13, remember? The next verses in chapter 31 is 7.05. So there's, a there's still 12 years to come. The, the dark skies are, are, are clouding up day by day. But it's still far enough away that the people don't find an urgency to trust the Lord. And so I think sometimes the Lord just has to let you, you know, <laughs> get to the end of yourself before he could do anything. Twelve years, oh, we can last a few more years. Therefore, the Lord, you know, puts them in that position. And he can put this in that position as well. He said in verse 17, 1,000 will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee. You'll, uh, you'll be left as a pole upon the top of the mountain as a banner upon the hill. It's, it's not going to work out. But this is the verse this morning that I wanted to bring you to. I know I've, I've gone the, the secur securitous. <laughs> I've gone the wrong, wrong way around. <laughs> and, and this is what the Lord then says to them. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of justice and blessed are those who wait upon him. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, this started back in 931. Well, it started back much further, but the last, the last bit, you know, was Solomon's death and this rebellion. So God's already been sitting on his hands 300 years. I don't know how much patience you have with people. I'm guessing it ain't 300 years. I'm guessing in traffic, you, you don't have much patience at all. Or, or people that are rude or that uh, you don't pay attention. Not very patient but, but look at this verse, because here our God shows us that he is patient, and he, in fact, he, we read, the Lord will wait that he might be patient to you. What was he waiting for? Well, he was waiting for his people to wake up. He was waiting for his people to realize that the north had fallen in, in, for, for the, the same problems, the same rebellion, the same issues. He would wait while they wasted their hard-earned money on Egyptian promises, he would wait while the Assyrians deliberately moved one mile closer to their goal and to their target, making plans for this catastrophic overthrow. He'll wait while their fear in the city turned to desperation. He will wait while even Hezekiah would send, again, back to history, would send money to the Assyrians. They'd say, please just leave us alone. Can we just buy ourselves out? they say, oh, sure, we'll take the money. And they just kept right on coming. God waited through all of that. God waits for his people to wise up. Sometimes the only way to learn a lesson at all is to learn the lesson the hard way. Don't like that? 
But I found that those are lessons that stick with me. There, there's that scripture, right, in, in Psalm 32 that the Lord said, I would rather just lead you with my eye. You know, my, my dad had an eye. Does your dad have an eye? Maybe you, you had a father. We could be at dinner somewhere, and if I wasn't behaving myself, he would just give me the eye. And it, I'd sit up straight. I would. I, he could straighten me right up. The Lord would just rather go like one of these, you know. But if not, he said, I can put a bit in your mouth and like a, a mule that won't come near you unless you hurt him. You know, I'll just drag you to myself. But you're coming one way or the other. And it is indeed that which you find the Lord doing here. So many times God must allow us to go through it before we learn the valuable lesson of going to him first. We sang it. First love. <laughs> we sang it. But are we living it? When we insist on our solution, are convinced that the only right way is our way, where we set his word aside, we seek counsel from others like these guys did, you know, okay, I'll wait right here is the Lord's response until you come back. I'll just be here. I'll just wait here. And it is God's way of love. Why does God does that? Do that, verse 18 says, because he wants to be gracious. The Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. He could have wiped you out. I would have wiped you out. You would have wiped me out. But it is God's heart for his people. He desires you to grow up and to get to him by faith and by grace. And eventually you are going to see it his ways. I'll guarantee you that. How patient is the Lord? How good is our God? How foolish is it for us to, to ignore this lesson written for us in narrative form so you can just stand there amongst the people and say, I voted to trust the Egyptians. I, I voted to send money to the Assyrians. I voted. What did you do to save your neck? You didn't turn to the Lord. God waited for them. God waits for us. He waits till it gets worse. He waits until your plans backfire. He waits until things fall, fall apart. He waits for you not easy for a father to wait. Fathers like to jump in there and fix. Redeem, retrieve. No way to learn like that. So he waits. In fact, if you go back to verse 15 here, that's, the, that's your move. Right? His, our, our move is, are we in rest, returning to him, in quietness and confidence, looking to him to be our strength, not looking to horses, not looking to... Anywhere else, just looking to our God. Now understand, they had a godly king, a godly prophet, a good pastor, if you will. They had everything they needed and a living example around them of what life is like when you put God aside. But somehow we still go to, well, I can fix it, my friends can help me. I can rely on a lot of resources and plans of attack. But eventually it all unravels. And then you come to the Lord in desperation and finally you're able to say, Lord, I want your help. And here's what the, you're going to hear from the Lord according to this verse. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you to know and to understand that I never asked you to fix anything. I just asked you to trust me. That's all I want. Read it again. The Lord will wait that he might be gracious to you. 
And boy, did he wait 70 more years after this and another 100 years before the, the final captivity would begin. Imagine your guardian angel <laughs> being told to stand down. Let the wheels come off as he shakes his head in unbelief at you. What in the world is wrong with these humans? For the next 12 years in the life of Judah, God sat and God waited. Now go back to chapter 31 for a minute since we're moving ahead then closer in the story. He says to them in verse 2 that the Lord is wiser and he will let disaster come and will not call it back. He will rise against the evildoers and the workers of iniquity. And then it says, now the Egyptians are men. They're not God. Their horses are flesh. They're not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They'll perish together. This is not going to work out at all. He goes on and he says, as, as the Lord has spoken to me, as a lion would roar or a young lion over the prey when even a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voices nor disturbed by their noise, for the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and, it, and for its hill like a bird flies about. So the Lord of hosts will defend Jerusalem. Defending it, he will also deliver it. And passing over it, he will also pervert, preserve it. <coughs> God is not frightened by the largeness of this army that is coming your way. God is not scared. He's, he's like a lion who's not at all afraid when more than one shepherd comes to chase him away. He'll be like a bird flying over the city to defend its people. But, verse 6, return to him then against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and idols of gold. Sin which your own hands have made for yourself. And then the Assyrians shall fall by the sword, but not of man. And of a sword, but not of mankind that shall survive him. He shall flee from the sword. His young men shall uh, become forced labor. He shall cross over to a stronghold in fear. His princes shall be afraid of the banner, saith the Lord, where there is fire in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. God is not afraid. But your enemy should be afraid because in that day that you turn to me, verse 6, I'll show you who I am. I'll show you what I can do. And this army will fall not by the hands of man, but by the hands of the Lord. So God waited. He waited back to verse 18 of the last chapter so that he could have mercy upon him. And the last part of that verse says, Blessed are those who wait on the Lord. So here's the simple formula, then you'll remember two chapters very easily. You have to ask yourself, who's waiting upon whom? If God is waiting upon you, that's no good. Because that means you're going to have a couple of deeper valleys to pass through and deeper rivers to cross and more sorrow to, to handle and, 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 and bear up under. But blessed is the man who waits on the Lord. Had Israel just turned to the Lord, this had been a, a, a slam dunk, but it wasn't. It became hundreds of years of history. In fact, the, the captivity by the, of the Jews to the Babylonians has twice as much coverage in the Bible as the captivity of Israel and Egypt. Because the first one, God delivered them from the world. It, it was his work. But the second one, they were there by their own choices. 
having a way out. They knew the Lord. Who is waiting upon whom? You can come to a place where you run out of ideas and, and your, your friends forsake you and your schemes that you've implemented don't work. And you'll get to this place where the Lord can say to you, blessed are those who wait upon me. Eventually the people and the king and, uh, and Hezekiah would go before the Lord in confidence and turn to him. You can read the whole story, by the way. It's in 2 Kings 17, 18, and 19. A little bit in Isaiah 36 as well. That's the, that's the setup, if you will. When, when one night, and you know the story, the Lord as a mighty lion or a bird swooping upon his prey rescued the people in a miraculous way. How bad did it get? People were in Jerusalem eating their own children, just trying to survive. And the Lord kept waiting because you're that valuable to him. He wants to be gracious to you. I, I think verse 18 of chapter 30 is a great memory verse. Because it is, it is better for you to be found waiting upon the Lord than to have the Lord be found waiting upon you. One of them ends up in disaster. The other ends up in deliverance. They're both D-worlds, I guess. Our flesh will always resist the idea of waiting upon God. We refuse to do so despite the lessons. I think we like to learn things the hard way. I, I'd like to tell you I, I've learned the lesson I haven't most of the time. But if, not, if I'm not waiting on the Lord, then he has no choice but to sit back and wait upon me. And maybe for some of you, God's been waiting on you for a long time. And your life is just difficult, and, and it's difficult because you're just not ready, you know. But blessed is the man who just found trusting in the Lord, who waits upon I know some of you, God has been speaking to you to get involved in church, get to serving, get to outreach. But, oh, you're so busy. I'll, I'll get to the Lord when I retire. Well, the Lord will wait. And you'll miss out on a lot of stuff. Waiting on you while you gather riches and get, waiting on you to make a name for yourself and waiting on you while you make a case while you can't really do any more than you're doing, while you don't make the sacrifice, while you don't want to you know, go out into the world to share your faith, just waiting upon you. You might want to go read Psalm 20 in the light of this verse. But God is waiting on you to bless you, to use you, to raise you up, to deliver you. But somebody's waiting this morning. It's either he's waiting on you or you're waiting on him. I hope it's the latter, yeah? Father, thank you this morning for your word to us. I know that the Lord, for some of us this morning in church, we've, we, we're the ones that you're waiting on. Waiting to speak to us, waiting to move in our midst, waiting to, to deliver us, to show us your way, to, to give us a direction, to provide for our needs, to, to heal our bodies, to, to set right our minds, to, to make our lives useful. You're just waiting. Because we somehow still think that there's an answer for us in a hundred different places, and none of them are with you. But may you remind us of this chapter 30, verse 18, verse. The Lord will wait upon you because he wants to be gracious to you. <clears throat> Blessed are those who wait on him. May we be those folks, Lord, this morning, that in our needs, in our challenges, in our questions, in our frustrations, in our, in our, in our hopeless cases, that we will be found this morning 
laying our cares before you and not picking them up as we walk out the door. Leaving them with you, waiting upon the Lord who wants to be gracious. And Lord, may that be what you find here in our fellowship. A, a, a people that wait upon God and that find his best and that he'll do miracles, even overthrowing the, bar, the big army that seems to be overwhelming. Who can fight against them? Well, the Lord can. He's, no, he's not fearful. He's more than capable. Give us that confidence, Lord, this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.